and welcome to Bad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 115. My name's Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Joel Camden. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Isla Veal, who talks about her role as an oncology physiotherapist. If you haven't had a chance, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest this evening, Barbara Wilson, who's going to be discussing her experience of breast cancer, along with the organisation Working With Cancer that she founded. So hi, Barbara. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, an absolute pleasure. And I'm particularly interested in this because having lots of friends and colleagues who've gone through a cancer diagnosis and working within like NHS organisations and within a higher education institute and even having friends who work in corporate industry, I'm really, really intrigued as to kind of what you've got to say and, and hopefully some nice little tips to take away for people. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, Barbara, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so um, I uh, worked for something like 40 years in the city. I was human resources director. Uh, at the time I was working in a big investment management company, I uh, got breast cancer. Uh, that was in 2005. Um, I had uh, three lumpectomies, uh, lymph node removal, chemotherapy for three months and then radiotherapy. Um, and I worked a little bit at the beginning uh, then kind of went sick, although I kept in touch with the office and worked though during my radiotherapy. Um, at the time, I was uh, so I was working. I was a, I was a full-time mum, as, as it were. Um, got had two boys, uh, one one fourteen and one ten, and I guess the real issue was I learned an awful lot about not only about myself, but more importantly, about the difficulties and challenges of managing work and cancer. And it struck me that if I was having problem problems, and I was a senior person in a big company, what was it like then for other people? So that struck me that there was an enormous gap in provision to support people who were trying to manage work and cancer. So just to continue, I kind of left, uh, uh, when I left that company and I eventually retired, uh, allegedly, <laughs> what is retirement these days, um, I set up working with cancer to provide support to people in, in kind of my, my situation, really, and set up the company in 2014, and we've been going ever since. What does the organisation do, Barbara? So we provide... I guess three main services to organisations. So let me go back a stage. We're called a social enterprise. We're not a charity. So what that means is we work with big organisations, uh, often in sort of banking professional services, but it doesn't really matter what industry. And the money they pay us for our support helps us provide subsidised or free support to people who approach us for support to help them with working through cancer and we also work with quite a few of the large cancer charities but the three services we provide are one-to-one um, -one coaching support and that can be from the point of diagnosis or it can be when people are about to return to work or they may be back at work and struggling so it can be re at any stage and, and by the way our services for people 
uh, with any cancer at any stage. So it covers all cancers. So we provide one-to-one -one coaching and we provide um, training awareness raising sessions about the challenges of managing working cancer. Um, and we do a lot of consultancy support as well for particularly for, for kind of big corporates where we're looking at their policies and processes and how how they support people affected by cancer. And I say affected by cancer because we don't just support um, people with cancer. We also support working carers. So uh, and we work throughout the UK and, and in Europe and we're hopefully about to start doing some work in the US. So Barbara, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your experience when you were going through your cancer treatment, did you have anyone talk to you about work, how you're coping with managing being a full-time mum working and also navigating your cancer treatments? No, <laughs> basically, um, there, you know, at the time that I was diagnosed, there was absolutely no no support or no recognition. So no support from kind of other charities or organisations, certainly not from within the NHS. And the whole issue around work and cancer wasn't an issue. I mean, I remember ringing quite a, a large, well-known breast cancer charity, I say no more, and this was after I set up the company. So this was about 2012. And I kind of said to their sort of head of operations, you know, I talked about the service and the words he spoke, which shocked me were, well, Barbara, it's an interesting service, but you need to remember that the people who are members of our charity are all women in their fifties. The implication being that women in their fifties don't work. <laughs> um, so the whole issue around working cancer was a kind of non-issue. And it, the, the good thing is what happened was I, it, it was around about 2008, and the then cancer czar, Professor Sir Michael Richards, was working with the Department of Health and, uh, Department of Health and Macmillan on a kind of national cancer survivorship initiative. And I rang up, um, uh, Sir Michael, because I happen to know him, to talk about the fact there was such a big gap in services for people trying to return to work. And he actually um, kind of, with Macmillan, put me on the kind of, I was chairing part of the of that initiative, or, and it was specifically around working cancer. So that was 2008, and I think that was the first time that really managing work and cancer was seen as as issues. So to answer your question, there was absolutely no interest. And I have to tell you, you know, I went to, I don't know, five different hospitals, had saw numerous consultants during the course of my treatment. Not one of them ever asked me about my job. Ever. It's really interesting, isn't it? And you can you can almost then see how if it's never raised, it's never acknowledged that from a patient's perspective, you kind of think, is this something that I should be raising? And Barbara, how did you feel kind of being in human resources? Because had you never come across people who'd gone through a cancer diagnosis within your company previously? No, absolutely. And, you know, you learn a lot when you have cancer. You know, it is a learning experience. And I do remember, 
you know, working, you know, there was one, one particular person who unfortunately had terminal lung cancer, a wonderful woman who was the secretary of the CEO. And I remember saying to her, you know, why don't you just give up work and, you know, spend time with your family? And she said, well, you know, I love my work. And if I'm at home, all I'm doing is thinking about my imminent death. I much rather come to work and be feel a bit like a normal human being. So yes, I, you know, there were lots of things I had no idea about until I had my own diagnosis. I suppose an element of that as well is it doesn't always have to be paid work. I've had quite a few of my own patients who voluntary work, that's all they wanted to get back to. Exactly. You know, so I, and of course, some people don't want to work or can't work, and that's fine. You know, the, the, what we do is not about making people work. It's about recognising that many people want to and need to, particularly with the cost of living these days. Um, but, uh, but if people are often um, out of work for a whole variety of reasons, doing some voluntary work is an excellent way back into employment. If people want to get back into employment or just a way of kind of, again, you know, interacting with other people, it gives them some social structure, it gives people a purpose aside, you know, because otherwise all you're doing is, frankly, and I remember it well, you know, you're sitting at home all day worrying about your own mortality, which is not a great place to be, I have to say. Barbara, what rights do people with cancer have? Because I'm just thinking, you know, I would imagine people's circumstances will vary quite significantly from a zero hours contract all the way through to someone who's employed full time, has benefits, has shares, uh, has a pension, those kinds of things. You know, how do you navigate all of that when you're facing a cancer treatment pathway? Well, I think I think it's very important that both individuals with cancer and carers and health professionals understand the legislation. And I'm not going to you know, bore you by going into loads and loads of it now, but it's important to, to read up on it because particularly those who are employed and particularly those who are carers are protected by a piece of legislation called the Equality Act, Equality Act 2010. And anyone with cancer is covered by that for, for the rest of their life. So it's not just while you're having treatment. And what it does is protects you from discrimination in the workplace. It protects you from at the point of recruitment. You don't have to have a certain amount of service. So the point of recruitment to, to when you're leaving that company for whatever reason. And it protects you from what's called direct discrimination. In other words, for example, not being promoted or, or, or receive training because you've had cancer. It protects you from what's called indirect discrimination. So, for example, being selected for redundancy because you've had a lot of sick leave. It protects you from something called um, it's discrimination arising from disability. So, for example, um, you come back to work, you're working reduced hours, we'll come on to that in a moment, and your manager says, well, you're a lovely person, but because you're working reduced hours, you're not, you're not as productive as, an, as you would normally be, and therefore we're docking your pay 
or your or your bonus because you know you've not been able to work all of those things are discriminatory and it's an uncapped award if you ever went to court and the amount of reputational damage that could be done is is significant there are, there are often cases you read in the newspaper where big organizations have discriminated against people with cancer so one is about their issues around discrimination carers have similar uh, rights not to be discriminated against because they're a carer for somebody with cancer so cancer is a protected characteristic like race and age and gender but the second important provision of the act is you're entitled to request reasonable adjustments they are adjustments which enable you to have for example a phased return to work time off uh, time off work for medical appointments working from home, flexible working, a whole variety of, of rights to, to those things. So it's a really important piece of legislation because it enables you to return to work successfully. The thing to understand though is many cancer patients don't realise they're covered. Many doctors don't understand the legislation and often employers don't understand the legislation. So a significant part of our work is actually educating people about the fact they have rights, you know, that they don't have to go back to work full time. And I, I mean, but the only issue is an employer is only uh, required to pay you for the hours you work. Some employers are very good and will pay you full pay if you're off work for a period of time. Um, but the significant thing is you can't be sacked because you've got cancer. Or at least if you are sacked because you've got cancer, you could, you know, certainly take that that person, uh, that organisation uh, to court because uh, it, it's, it's wrong to pick on people just because they happen to have got sick with cancer. So it's a very important set of rights that everyone should be aware of. Why don't organisations know about this? <laughs> a really good question. I have no idea. Um, I think part of the part of the problem is is that people often don't realise it applies to cancer. They may think it applies to, as I said, race and age and gender, but they don't realise that it covers a specific long-term illness, chronic illness like cancer. There are other conditions that are also covered. Um, why don't they realise? You know, some of it is just. Uh, lack of training, lack of lack of understanding, um, and, and and you know the other thing that I think is terrible, cancer is sort of not fashionable. So there's there's lots of discussion in organisations about mental health and about other chronic illnesses, but kind of cancer. Oh, you know we've done cancer. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting you say that and you do often see like I've been in oncology for a while now and you do see trends where organizations or even the focus is on specific pathologies or specific um traits specifically and um, I'm thinking about the menopause movement which has been amazing we needed it to happen but it's just a shame isn't it that you kind of almost have to have those very intense periods where everyone changes their processes and protocols um rather than actually it being situation of everything that people are doing within human resources within kind of their own department 
departments thinking about actually how can we be inclusive of everyone? Um, I'm afraid you're absolutely right. And I know I, I, I often tell the story of when, again, when I when I first set up the company, I, I went, I, I approached a very large uh, legal firm to talk about what I did. And they said, well, Barbara, what you're doing is really interesting. But we did cancer last year. Um, you know, and I think, I think, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, I think, unfortunately, there are some organisations which treat, you know, there is, the, there was the resilience movement about three or four years ago, you know, there are, there are kind of fashions. And I think cancer is, cancer's with us forever. And so it's important organisations recognise that you know that people can that they can say you know to, to be hard nosed they can save an awful lot of time and money uh, 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 in terms of recruiting and not having to re-recruit re or train people a lot of time and money if they only spend time supporting people to make a return to work it's baffling isn't it um, it is absolutely. i'm sure a lot of these organizations will have um cancer awareness days or things like that as well uh, they do, um, but they tend to be what I call lunch and learn events. So it's one hour at lunchtime and then they move on to the next topic. And, you know, I'm afraid to say that you can't really cover a significant illness that affects one in two people in their lifetime. You can't cover it in an hour's lunch and learn. Can I ask about insurance? So as much as I love the NHS, there's a lot of my friends and people I know will have private insurance through their work. How does it work trying to, yeah, if you're getting covered and you've moved jobs, for example, and you're trying to get a new private insurance or whatever through work, is that still possible? Uh, it just depends on that organisation's policy. One of the issues that often affects health insurance, and I'm, I have to tell you, I'm not a benefits expert, Naman, um, is that the that very often, if you're switching insurer, there'll be a rule about pre, whether they cover pre-existing conditions. So if you're moving from one employer to the other, it's quite, and in fact, I did this, I made sure I kept with, I, I spoke to my HR team about my situation, I mean, they knew I had cancer, I spoke to them about my situation and they made sure that the insurer, it was the same insurer. Now I have to say, you know, I was relatively seedier. I had a fair amount of clout. I'm not sure how many organizations would do that for a kind of ordinary, ordinary employee. But you know, that uh, different insurance companies will have different policies and you do need to read the small print. I mean, unfortunately, often HR professionals don't read the small print because there's only so much some policies cover and there'll be some treatments that the individual want to have and then the issue is will that organization make a special effort to cover them or say look i'm sorry we can't do that and a lot depends on the insurance and what they'll do so it is tough you can switch insurers but it's not easy can i ask you what's been your biggest learning to date from setting up and, and working within, working with cancer? Gosh, well, I think one of the is, is that everyone is different. Um, that every, you know, there are, 
over 200 different forms of cancer. We know there are, you know, an individual can have breast cancer in their left breast and their right breast, and they're actually different, different types of tumour. Um, so the one thing you learn is that everyone's experience is different and it is wrong to make assumptions and comparisons that potentially will disadvantage people. The classic thing is, I know X who worked all through their treatment. Yeah. Well, you know, somebody might have exactly the same cancer and exactly the same treatment, but their physiology is different and they will react differently to that treatment. And psychologically, they're in a different place. They'll have different issues they're coping with outside of the hospital, either at work or at home. So I think the one thing I've learned is never to judge people or, or rush to judgment uh, and, to, and to make sure employers are aware that they must, you know, everyone's experience is valid. And, and the other thing that really annoys me is when a line manager or an HR person will say, well, I know about breast cancer, my mum had that, or I know about prostate cancer because my dad had that. Well, you know, you're not the world's leading expert because you know one person who, who had that experience. So the one thing I say I've learned is the fact to treat everyone as individuals. And I think it's important health professionals do that too. Barbara, I have a slightly difficult question. If someone is having treatment and working, but they die, what happens with their rights and what happens with the family with respect to their contract and things like that? Well, a lot depends again on, you know, typically if people have, are working and, they're, and, and they die while they're working, they, there'll normally be some sort of life insurance and, you know, and there'll, be, there'll be certain payments and things that will be owed to them. One of the issues that is, is actually particularly pertinent is somebody who's extremely, extremely ill, very often their, their, their employer will terminate their employment on the grounds of capability, which they can do, somebody just purely incapable of working. But once they terminate their employment, they then terminate their death in service payments. And we try and get employers to recognise if they can keep someone on the books um, even though they're terribly ill, then the family will get that death in service payment. So it's it's very tough. Most employers will have relatively little experience of supporting somebody towards the end of life and to supporting colleagues who are bereaved as a result and families. Um, we do quite a lot of work now supporting individuals, coaching individuals as they approach the end of life. And it is immensely helpful to them and their families and to their colleagues at work. Most employers have very little experience of that. But so, so the issue about your rights is your rights continue while you're working. Once your employment is terminated, your rights with your employer obviously disappear because you're no longer employed but we're trying to persuade employers you know to and some actually do it voluntarily i mean i won't name the employee because it gets someone into trouble but they they basically you know somebody went sick because they were bless them they were terribly ill and they were at home and having you know palliative care and then hospice care and that this individual's lo local line manager basically just put down on the employment record that they were still 
working and employed. So they were still getting paid and they got their um, death in service payments when they or the family did when they died. And um, whether I don't know if they ever told head office what they were doing, but that is a you know that's a compassionate employer who will do the right thing. Have you got experience of people working in the NHS who use working with cancer? Because I know sometimes it's very easy for us to do as much as we possibly can do for our patients. We go above and beyond, but sometimes as an employer, the NHS does get a bad rap. You know, what's your experience of, of kind of supporting people? Um, not good. I have to tell you, I think, you know, if this was a, a performance appraisal report, it would be could do better, a lot better. I think one of the issues is that people are expected to return to work after four to six weeks and will often be told that by occupational health and you cannot recover from cancer treatment in four to six weeks it's impossible and they're told they need to be back full-time at work within four to six weeks now we work with doc we work with doctors and nurses and with people in the most senior positions within the nhs who have been told they need to be back at work within four to six weeks and what we say is that is you know it's it's impossible and you can actually push back but most people don't know they can push back. And one of the problems is, is that, I mean, I love the NHS, by the way, I'm a huge fan. My son is a, a junior doctor uh, in the NHS. But I think advantage is taken of people's good nature. Uh, I think many people working in the NHS are, are there because they are, feel passionately that they want to support people uh, and they want to do the right thing by their patients. Uh, and I think the system takes advantage of that. So people feel enormously guilty if they take longer than the time they've been told. And their colleagues, unfortunately, will make them feel guilty that they're not back of work. And what I have said, and, you know, I've worked with consultants, several consultants, and I've said, look, if I'm a patient, I do not want you treating me if you're not well. I want you to be well enough that you can give me your proper attention. So if you're suffering foggy headedness, um, a huge fatigue, which are classic side effects of cancer treatment, I, I want you to recover. I don't want you trying to work through fatigue and cognitive dysfunction um, because that's not going to be helpful to me and it's certainly not going to be helpful to you. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we might be doing a little bit of work with one particular trust to help them review their policies and practices around working with cancer. I think there's an enormous need for the NHS, as it said, to kind of take a step back and think if, what would I recommend to my patients, you know? So what I recommend to my patients, I would need to recommend to myself and my colleagues. How long do reasonable adjustments last? So when someone's in remission, hasn't had treatment in a while, and it's all over, they've been discharged, how long, and obviously patients get late effects decades down the line? Theoretically, forever. You're covered by the law forever. 
the issue is that the, the word reasonable is a common law term. What's reasonable for me is not necessarily reasonable for you. But I think I think there's a lot of things you can do that are creative these days around managing your time, you know, working from home or, you know, doing doing virtual clinics or whatever it is, if you're in the NHS. Um, if you were to say to your boss, look, you know, I can only work on a Monday afternoon from three to four and a Wednesday at lunchtime and a Friday from 8.30 to, to nine, that's not reasonable. But I think it's perfectly reasonable to say whatever organisation you work in, uh, I'd like to start back for the first two weeks doing two mornings a week. And then if that's OK, what I'll do is I'll do three mornings a week. And if that's OK, I'll work up to four mornings a week. In other words, think of this. I always think of to say to people we're working with, think of the fact you're getting into a swimming pool where the water's really cold and you're going down those steps, you go very gradually. And sometimes you get to a certain point, you think, oh my God, this is too cold. So you have to step back a bit, yeah? So that's it. So, so sometimes you have to take it very gradually, then recognize actually this is now too much and pause or go back and then you begin again. So I think it's a very gradual process. And um, uh, there are many occupational health professionals good ones who would recommend that and it's important that they that, that the individual understands they have a right to that even though they've had they're in remission and they've had no treatments and no side effects for a while if suddenly either the cancer's come back or they're not feeling well again they can ask for adjustments again quite reasonably by the way if you've got menopause as a result of cancer that is covered by the act or if your menopause has been heightened by your cancer treatment because uh, you're on tamoxifen or whatever you know and sometimes the meds give you an, an enhanced menopausal symptoms you can again ask for reasonable adjustments to support you because the menopause at the moment is not covered by the equality act Interesting. I didn't know that it wasn't covered. Yeah. Not yet. There was a movement, um, I think, earlier this year, maybe last year, I can't remember exactly when, to have it covered by the Equality Act, but it, it didn't happen. Barbara, what do you wish healthcare professionals knew more about to support patients? It's not about, no. I mean, they need to know about the law. This is about treating the patient as a person as opposed to a patient. So, you know, do you, the health professionals listening in, do you know what your patients do for a living? Do you know what that entails? Have you, when it comes to treatment, are there, can, can you flex a bit so that it can accommodate work? Yeah. So work is, in, for most people, work is a really, really important part of your life. It pays the bills. It gives you social structure. It gives you normality. It's important to that person. So I think I think there are things you can know about the law, but it's important to understand the person you're treating and to treat work, being able to work, as a valid clinical outcome. 
Barbara, we've come to the end. It's gone too quickly. I've still got loads more questions to ask you. Um, but we always end Rad Chat with top tips. And I know you've talked a little bit about kind of healthcare professionals. If there are any patients listening, what advice would you give them um, for kind of working with cancer? Well, I, I, I think um, I did make a list for myself. So bear with me if I look down for a moment or two. I think one thing is being 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 prepared for appointments and being uh, understanding what's going on. I, I know cancer is really scary, and people. So there are some people I work with who say, "And I, I didn't. I, I'm not going to ask about that because I don't want to know." But I, I'm a great one in believing that forewarned is forearmed, and 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 once you know what the typical treatments are and the typical side effects, you can. You can kind of manage that better. You can understand better what's going on. So I think it's, you know, cancer is really scary thing for uh, people once they're diagnosed. You know, it, as as there's a wonderful clinical psychologist, by the way, who who wrote a, an article called "After the Treatment Finishes, Then What?" Name is Dr. Peter Harvey, and he writes, "Whoever you are, whatever your personality," I'm paraphrasing. Um, a diagnosis of, tr of cancer changes your life irrevocably. And uh, it's important not to kind of let things run away with you, you know, run away from you. It's important to know what's going on. So I always say, you know, are, are, you know, be prepared for meetings with your consultant, you know, have some, have some questions prepared, uh, record the, the, the conversation if you can, go, go with somebody else and make a point of trying to understand what's going on so that you're, you, you can um, uh, say be, be prepared and keep a journal because particularly with something like chemotherapy which has you know the cycles of chemotherapy and with radiotherapy too you can you can map or at least monitor your symptoms and side effects and once you're aware of the patterns of what's happening you can manage your life and your work a bit better um, I think so. I said it's really important to kind of have an inquiring mind, however grim the news may be. And often it's not as grim as you imagine. You know, things become more worrying if we don't know about them. Um, I think the other thing is I always say silence is not golden. So to speak to people, speak to your manager, speak to your colleagues, speak to HR, because they can only support you if they know what's going on. So, so silence isn't golden in this particular case. The other thing is to particularly recognise that recovery from cancer is not linear. So it's like that. Yeah. So you have good days and bad, not good weeks and bad weeks, good days and bad days. But, you know, it's important not to, because very often people will, if they've been off work for a long time, they'll go back to work, they'll feel great for the first four or five weeks, and then suddenly the fatigue really hits them. And they lose confidence in themselves and their manager loses confidence in themselves. And, you know, I've heard managers say, well, you're not the person you used to be. And that's really not helpful. That's when people give up and, and leave work. So it's be prepared for that and don't make assumptions about your recovery. Don't compare yourself with the guy or gal next door who had the same cancer and then climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. OK, just do what's right for you and be patient with yourself.
that's a few oh, so Barbara, they're amazing with. tips and i'm sure anyone listening will take something valuable away from that so thank you so much you've been amazing so, so thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara and Nomanjelka Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So our next guest feature will be James Barber, who's going to be discussing his role as a pre-treatment therapeutic radiographer and equalise with the Society of Radiographers EDI group. So thank Thank you all for listening and take care.